welcome to the Bridging Theology podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian living. Bridging Theology is hosted by Drs. Beth Stovell, Candace Smith, Claudia Herrera-Montero, Ryan Reed, and me, Kevin Hill. Today's episode features a conversation with Dr. Madison Pierce. Madison is Associate Professor of New Testament at Western Seminary, and she's also the author of multiple books, including Divine Discourse in the Epistle to the Hebrews, which is from Cambridge University Press in 2020. Our hosts today are Beth Stovell, who specializes in biblical studies, and Ryan Reed, who specializes in John Calvin and historical theology. And now, on with the conversation. Thank you for listening. I'm Beth Stovell. And I'm Ryan Reed. Today we are very pleased to have with us Madison Pierce. Madison, welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast. Thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, yeah, let's get going here. So Madison, uh, we wondered if you could just start, maybe you could tell us something about yourself that not a lot of people would know. Yeah, so this came up with some friends the other day. So this is why this is kind of off the top of my head is where I would go because um my daughter's super into dinosaurs, and she actually ha- now has a, or, or now is in the habit of um, humming the Jurassic Park score. Um, and so, <laughs> what came up with some friends is that I love Jurassic Park. <laughs> like, I really love it. Um, I think it's a classic yeah. and uh, and worthy of praise. So. Um, I, I guess yeah. that's surprising. I thought everyone loved Jurassic Park, but yeah. Do you, do, you, do you like all of them, like the or just more just the first one? Or I definitely think that the first one is a masterpiece, but I will mm-hmm. watch any of them happily. And even yeah. Lost World, which is kind of controversial, I really like because um, I think that Dr. Ian Malcolm is uh perfect so, yeah. <laughs> i actually feel like the first one is is a masterpiece yeah. I, I actually would yeah i could totally agree with you on that okay. yeah it's, it's a wonderful movie yeah it's so it's so good we actually got to bring um, our kids to the theater to they re-released it in the theater um in calgary wow. and so we got to get let them watch it on a big screen That's amazing. and they they were they were jumping up and pulling their feet up and everything else that we did i remember doing that when i was young and watched it and it was such a fun experience um, to watch them have those emotions that I had in that first experience of it. So anyways, that's awesome. <laughs> and I, I really have enjoyed getting to know you, Madison, over the years. And, you. Um, uh, but you know, something I've never asked you before <laughs> is actually how you became a scholar. Your New Testament work, it spans so many different parts of the New Testament. And I would love just to hear how you, what path led you down here? Yeah. Um, I, so the first answer to this question is that at a really young age, I felt called to teach. Um, and at the time I didn't, I, the only teachers I knew were in the church. And so I thought, surely I too will teach in the church. If I love theology and they love teaching, that must be the place for me. Um, at the time, I had to wrestle with what that meant for me, especially as a young woman in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, we're trying to process, you know, how I could be faithful in my calling and everything like that. Well, then when I got to college, um, I recognized that there were other people who taught theology, uh, namely professors. 
And so um, started to kind of understand the kinds of questions and some of the distinctions between what it meant to teach in the church and to teach as a scholar, um, and really felt like the Lord was leading me towards the latter. Um, that I really, I also loved writing, I loved to research, and that those things would be best suited for someone in the academy. And so, um, you know, a similar, at the time, um, I also was kind of figuring out what I was most interested in and all of that. Um, and long story short, which I know this will be a good transition to some of our other stuff that we might talk about, um, took a class on Hebrews and the general epistles. And so um, in undergrad, fell in love with Hebrews. Um, and so all the different things that I've worked on do have some threads um, and all roads lead to Hebrews. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Roman road, sort yeah. of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Um, no, that is a good transition, Madison. So I wonder if you could just tell us like, well, even just, I'm interested in, to know some of the specifics about Hebrews, but could you tell us a little bit just about how you got like interested in the book of Hebrews? I guess maybe give us more detail on like what was so fascinating about it to you. Yeah. Um, so I, um, I was really interested in the old Testament and I think some of that is just kind of a strange fascination. Um, and what I, what I really, what I gleaned from what was taught, you know, maybe this wasn't exactly what I was taught, but what I understood from what I was taught is that, um, God did a thing and then he did a different thing and, mm-hmm. you know, he changed his mind even, you know, though that would never be the language that that would be used, that there was kind of, that was almost the implication. And so that was unsatisfactory to me. And um, so when I sat down in this class on Hebrews with Joey Dawson, if anybody knows Joey, um, do you know Joey? <laughs> he started to talk about um, how we understood who Jesus is in light of Scripture, and how that connected to early Jewish teaching and early Jewish literature and all of that. And so that paired with the just incredible poetry of Hebrews one in particular, but of, of course it extends throughout the whole book. Um, I was in love and um, just continued to be so fascinated as we worked through it. So for me, it answered a a personal question or kind of helped me to deal with a personal kind of quandary Mm -hmm. that I was dealing with. Um, But it, it answered that in a really beautiful way. So. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense. So um, it seems like one thing with the book of Hebrews is it's a very like misunderstood book or it's, it's a confusing book. And I do think probably as a scholar, you probably are aware, like there's, seems like there's people that, um, there's things like, you know, that are easily misunderstood about the book. Um, so I, I wondered if you could even just kind of just start us, like, what are some misconceptions that people have about the book of Hebrews? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that um, to to answer this, it, it really, there, I think there's an overarching thread and a lot of the misconceptions that I could point to, and then I can give some examples. But I think the the major reason that people read Hebrews poorly is because they too quickly harmonize it with other New Testament texts, Paul's letters in particular. And so if you assume, for example, that Hebrews is teaching something like justification by faith, and that that's the primary focus that the author has when he's talking about, you know, their salvation journey and things like that, well, you're going to end up having some really strange readings of the warning passages and have a lot of trouble with those. If you mm. think that uh, the eschatology 
is, you know, the same kinds of emphases as Paul, then you'll end up having some issues with Hebrews 12, for example, maybe. Um, and so I think that the, those are some of the the problems there. Even the language of the new covenant is something that um, that Hebrews and Paul might gloss differently. And, I, you know, I should say as a caveat in case I'm making anybody nervous that I'm by no means saying that Paul and the author of Hebrews have disparate theological views. I'm saying that they're presenting things with different images and different metaphors and different emphases. And so we can't necessarily map them onto each other without doing the hard work of understanding each of them independently. We can't know how this in Hebrews and this in Paul relate until we understand what they're doing on their own. So um, where was I going with this? Um, so I, th- I think yeah. those are some of the the important misconceptions, but I can expand on that further if, if y'all have any, you know, follow up or whatever. Well, you know, in some ways that connects with the next thing that I was going to ask you about, because I think that the uniqueness of Hebrews is part of what you're getting at in this conversation. And um, it, it'd be really interesting for you to talk a little bit about what you think are unique insights that Hebrews gives, whether that's in Christology or maybe some other things about um, what Hebrews gives to us when we do read it as its own book kind of functioning in itself. Yeah. Um, I, I think there are a lot of distinctives. Um, I certainly think that the emphasis um, on, on this as high priest is something that's distinctive to Hebrews. I wouldn't say that it's absent in the rest of the New Testament. In fact, um, that, you know, that's something that I'm working on right now is showing how pervasive kind of high priestly uh, messianism was, or priestly messianism was. Um, But that's a distinctive focus in Hebrews. Um, But the thing I might point to is something that also kind of highlights a a part of my own journey, which is that um, one of the, the reasons that I was so thankful that God had led me to Hebrews later on um, is that I started to have some really significant health challenges. And uh, this is particularly when I was finishing up at seminary. And then as I went to Durham for my PhD, um, I was really struggling. You know, I, I say quite often that um, I feel like I spent all of 2015 and 2016 on the couch. Mm-hmm. And there were texts in Paul, like, my grace is sufficient for you um, in Second Corinthians that, that cut to my core. Because when I can't get off the couch and I'm struggling and I feel I feel like an utter failure in so many ways, my question was always, you know, God, what what is your grace sufficient for? It's not mm-hmm. sufficient for me thriving. But uh, in that time, uh, Hebrews encouraged me the idea that Christ had been made human in every way and thus could not only be a faithful, but also a merciful high priest. That meant something really significant to me that he was tested in every way that I was, um, you know, and, and thus for me, um, that probably meant that, you know, he was with me in what I was experiencing. And so that, that to me was encouraging to know that, God is not asking me to do something that he himself has not endured. Um, Mm -hmm. So that I think that's distinctive in Hebrews as well is this idea of um, what had the role that suffering plays for humans, Mm -hmm. um, but also Mm -hmm. how Christ participates in human suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, that's actually something, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about sometimes is like, what is the, what are some of the central things that connects theology across all of scripture and that notion of God's desire to be with us mm. as, and the, I sometimes call it like the withness of God. Um, and that in Hebrews, the unique way that that 
God with us is pictured. Um, and I love that that was so personally meaningful to you because I think, um, you know, that's actually something that notion of God with us in John's gospel is actually part of why I got excited to study John's gospel was that notion of what does it mean for God to dwell with us? Yeah. And so, um, I love, I love that that's, that that's where that led you. Um, and I, I mean, I might know the answer to this question, but is that part of what you would say you see is what's beautiful in Hebrews? Would you add to that list of the things that you think of as beautiful? Oh, Beth, all day. I could be adding to that list. There's so many beautiful yeah. things in Hebrews. Um, but I think that that might be this thing. If I had to pick a one thing that I would say, you know, is, um, is really uh, beautiful um, for us to consider, you know, something that might encourage us, um, especially as believers, and that, that that would probably be the single thing that I'd want people to take away. Yeah, absolutely. Could you, um, Madison, like, I think it's it's beautiful. It's also challenging. Like, talk about, like, you were kind of mentioning that before, but like the eschatology in the book of Hebrews. And I think especially in relationship to, like, perseverance, like, um, and um, it seems like there's something going on with, like, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is this, you know, and then I'm going to forget that number. Is it Hebrews 12, where like we've not come to the mountain? Yeah. That uh, this is such a beautiful passage, but it seems like kind of a culmination of everything that's been building up. So, how does the author develop this theme of perseverance and coming to not to Sinai, but to the New Jerusalem? And I don't know if you could help our listeners kind of understand that theme a little uh, just a little bit even yeah i'll do my best um but the you know this is you're launching me into something something rather extensive here ryan so i'm going to try to be as brief as i can um but yes it's absolutely the culmination of hebrews because um what what we see uh, you know scholars are um really even still developing this but it comes out of the work of those like kazamon even who says that Hebrews imagines its audience as these people in the wilderness. It's the wandering people of God is Kazamon's book that he writes when he's imprisoned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, what we're recognizing now is how much of Hebrews that actually encompasses because Kazamon's focus was really on chapters three and four and then on, on 12. Um, but people like David Moffat are showing that in Hebrews two, for example, We've got something like a Passover passage that they're being released from the power um, of the one who holds the, or released from the grip of the one who holds the power of death. Um, that's an mm-hmm. awful lot like what takes place when they're liberated from Egypt and when they're saved from uh, the destroyer. Um, so we have something like that. In Hebrews 6, we, of course, have imagery of the wilderness. Um, so what he's asking, what he's showing is that they're a part of this ongoing story of the people of God, but, you know, but they too are in the wilderness on this journey. And so um, a lot of times we talk about, you know, faith is a journey and that sounds rather trite. Um, so we think of this and, and, you know, we think, oh, okay, whatever, you know, that's, that's just some kind of cliche or, or any, or something like that. But in Hebrews, <laughs> that's a really faithful biblical metaphor. Um, that's absolutely mm-hmm. the way that Hebrews portrays this is that our faith, our faith mm-hmm. is a journey. Um, and it's a journey that ends at this heavenly mountain. And so the idea is that God's people have been on their way the whole time since they left Egypt. And they've mm-hmm. had some significant setbacks, um, 
like what happens in Numbers 14 um, when they're cursed and unable to enter the land, when they, re- you know, when they're exiled, when X, Y, Z, these various things. Um, but as a whole, the people of God continue on. And so um, there in Hebrews 12, they finally make it to the mountain. And um, this is a place that isn't like Sinai at all. Because, you know, and sorry, this is a little bit of a side note, but but I love Hebrews 12 too. So here we go. Sinai is a scary <laughs> yeah, place. Sinai is the mm-hmm. place where there's lightning and thunder and and they are frightened. Even Moses, this faithful one, says, I'm terrified and trembling. Um, but the important thing is that this isn't a place like Sinai. This is a beautiful place mm. where angels are celebrating, where the all the people of God are joined in, in assembly, that there's um, joy and, and that comes on the heels of meeting Christ. And so um, perseverance is, so that's a different picture of perseverance. I can answer, I, I imagine you have another kind of perseverance that you might want to ask about. But that's mm-hmm. that's, yeah. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> what the author depicts for us explicitly is this journey uh, that they need to persevere on. You know, something mm. that I really appreciate about the answer to that question and is the degree to which the Old Testament shapes the answers that you're giving, but also how Hebrews picks that up and moves those images in new directions. And I would love to, I'd love to hear, you know, you talked a little bit about maybe misconceptions and also maybe where people sometimes, where you started in terms of what people told you about how the Old Testament is related to Hebrews. You know, what has it been like studying Hebrews, the amount that you have, has it shaped and changed how you think about the Old Testament? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so as, as a side note, I'll say that I usually joke that I'm basically an Old Testament scholar because of how much I spend <laughs> in the Old Testament. I'm always yeah. like reading Leviticus and hanging out with the Pentateuch <laughs> and the prophets and yeah. all of that. So I try, especially when I'm with Old Testament people, I'm like, come on, yeah. like I'm basically there, right? You can, you can, I'll, I'll yeah. count you. You can hang out with, you can hang out with my crew. Thanks, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that another misconception, this is actually what I forgot um, that I was trying to, trying to circle back to earlier, um, is that uh, another misconception is about discontinuity between the faith of those people that are addressed in Hebrews and the ones before. So in my understanding, and this is, so this is the answer to the question that you just asked, you know, how has it shaped my understanding of the Old Testament? Um, Hebrews imagines that this, there is a lot of continuity. I mean, the reason or, or one argument for this is the fact that his whole argument is based on the priestly aspects of Jesus's work. Mm-hmm. Um, if the sacrificial system was rubbish or if um, it was of no consequence, especially to his readers. Then why in the world is this the dominant metaphor that he's trying to use here? I mean, yeah. that, that's absurd. Um, but it's something that has lasting significance for them. It might, it might still be a part of the way that they are relating to God as they're approaching him through these various rituals. And he's trying to explain the significance of them in light of the Christ event. So for me, um, I think that Hebrews teaches us that uh, that God and certainly Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Um, and that, that has to do with the way that he relates to us and the, the truth, the truth of, uh, Jewish scripture, especially for them. I hope that makes mm. sense. No, I really appreciate that. I think one of the things, you know, I work in the old and the new, but one of the things about being an Old Testament professor is encouraging people to understand that you actually will understand more about the New Testament, more about who Jesus is because you studied the Old Testament, Absolutely. because there is so much of, well, not everything is is continuity. Right. There is so much continuity between the two, um, the big story of what God is doing. And so, yeah, I love, I, I love that. Um, you know, another book that gets a lot of, uh, doozies. It's a bit of a doozy for people. Um, the book of revelation is definitely one of the ones people struggle with. Um, uh, you know, I love, I love talking about it. Um, and I, I find it fascinating that people are often, you know, terrified or kind of not sure what to do with it. Um, could you share a little bit about some of the general tips you have for reading and studying a book like that? Um, yeah. Um, I should say that when I teach Revelation, which I do almost every semester, it seems I, I teach Revelation. Um, I repent of being one of those people that avoided Revelation as best I could. And then God's humorous plan was to bring me here to TEDS, where I taught it almost every semester. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I won't tell y'all how, you know, when I stopped avoiding Revelation, but when I started teaching it, um, <laughs> it's okay. I was the same way with, I honestly was the same way with Leviticus. So it's fair. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I'm so thankful that that was part of, of God's plan for me because, um, it has enriched my faith so much. And so uh, the advice that I would have is that, um, whatever your schema for how to interpret revelation is, it has to be something that shapes your worship of God today. It absolutely has to. That This is a book for ethical instruction. And so for some people, that's going to be, you know, we better get it all together because, you know, someday Jesus is coming back. Um, for others, it's going to be that this is a message about how we operate in the world today and that there's a measure of faithfulness that, um, or there's a measure of unfaithfulness that we often feel tempted towards. Um, but whatever <laughs> your your dominant way of reading is, it has to be something that shapes the way that you relate to God now. Yeah, that's great. I yeah, I'm trying to think in terms of the symbolism uh, in uh, Revelation, Madison. Do you have any advice there on how to kind of? I think it probably, I guess, probably relates to the stuff you're saying about the Old Testament. But how can people? I think that is a real challenge for people. There's um, horns and you know beasts and all of these things and it's it's it, I mean I think that it's very moving to people people get the sense that this is powerful but it's also like what am I supposed to to do with this and how how can people kind of start get make a, a start and kind of understanding those images yeah I hope this doesn't sound like punting but I, I think the first thing that we have to do is to recognize where our tradition is at so if you or if you feel um, you know that you're within a certain tradition or denomination, then you know that's the best place to start at least, and to say you know where are the resources for my personal tradition, um, and how does it encourage me to read Revelation? Because you know as I kind of gestured, um, you know some are going to read it more in a more futurist way, um, some are going to think of it more you know as something describing the past predominantly. 
And then, of course, some are going to think that this is indicative of the present age. And so that's probably the starting point and, and um, should, should make a difference. You know, the, the, I think yeah. the dominant schema for revelation at this point is something like an, a kind of eclectic approach where, um, mm. you know, some symbols are read in terms of the past, some in terms of the present, some in terms of the future. And that gives you more flexibility. But I still think that the kind of dominant voices uh, from within your tradition help. Um, if you don't have a tradition or if you don't strongly identify with the tradition, or you might be exploring voices outside your tradition, um, then there, I would just encourage you to, um, yeah, to start with some of the Old Testament backgrounds, but then also to find some interpreters who, um, offer different perspectives and, and, and all of that. So uh, like I said, that may be punting a little bit, but I, I, I always want to be somewhat yeah. ecumenical in my <laughs> responses. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. I think there can be a temptation with Revelation um, to say, there's one way to read this. Um, yeah. And when that happens, it actually, in some ways, removes a whole bunch of different people's ways of reading. And so there is a gift in being able to say, there are going to be different traditions in whatever room I'm in. And I'm going yeah. to try and interact with you guys in, in like loving and caring ways so that this is meaningful to you. And so I just appreciate, I appreciate that, um, that posture. Cause I think that that's an important posture as a professor in a diverse context. So that's right. Yeah. The one thing I tell the students is that if there's anything that's off limits for us here as we're working through revelation or, or so- something that would worry me, is um, if anybody tells you they've got Revelation figured out, that's the person you run away from. Um, so, and I really mean that. Um, there, we all have to operate with a certain level of, of humility when we approach Revelation because it's a symbolic text. And um, even if we work really, really hard, there might be things that we get a little bit wrong. That's not to say that we can't understand it and they can't be meaningful for us and all of that, but you know, knowing what horns are or something like that, or why, why they're there. Um, that may be something we've got to keep working through. So. Cool. Well, just um, kind of wrapping up this section, just more on your research side of things, Madison, um, as you're able to share, like, do you have any projects you're working on right now that you want our listeners to know about? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm working on a commentary on Hebrews. Um, that's a long ways down the road. I have gotten through Hebrews 2, so that, you know, that exists. <laughs> but, it's, you know, that's only a, a small portion of the text. Um, working yeah. on a commentary on First Peter, but the the kind of, the next monograph or next full-length book that I'm working on is a book on priestly Messiah language or priestly messianism um, in Hebrews and um early Jewish literature, or at least it's kind of precursors and all of that. So that's something I'm super excited about. And it's kind of fueling some of this other work. So, yeah. Well, wow. That's, yeah. It sounds like you got a lot of go. Can I ask what, what series are those in? Are are you able to say the commentaries? Yeah. The Hebrews commentary is in the Baker exegetical series. So Becknet. Um, And then the um, first Peter is in this uh, Bible and God's word commentary series which i think Rebecca, are you contributing to that as well i am that's why you and i were at a table for dinner a while ago (laughs) yeah Yeah. Uh, i'm doing hosea on that with uh, mason lancaster so fantastic awesome okay so i get to be the one who starts our fun questions although i think talking about hebrews is fun um but uh but but these are like these are like more like your you know your your lighten up questions okay so um so what are what are a few books that you've been reading recently that have impacted you in some way? 
Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that these are necessarily like light or <laughs> fun. But, <laughs> um, I've I recently read um, Subversive Witness, um, mm. which it has been really excellent. It's, a, it's really about privilege. Um, and so that was really instructive for me. Um, I've been reading When Narcissism Comes to Church um, and just trying to understand various kinds of church cultures and all that. So, um, yeah, that's <laughs> those are my the books that have shaped me recently. Um, I'm I'm you know I recently finished like um, How to Fight Racism, and I thought it was excellent. The Stramar Tisby. Um, so though, when I, when I'm reading for fun, um, I'm trying to read things that are outside of my kind of dominant area. And so yeah. one, I try to prioritize um, people outside my tradition so that I can understand you know understand a little bit more and hear different perspectives. Um, but then, you know, reading things that will help me to be a better practitioner and a better uh, professor and theologian and all of that as well. So, yeah. Awesome. I expected maybe a dinosaur book or two based on the... <laughs> I'm reading a lot question. of dinosaur books. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. Toddlers. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, they're shaping you in some way, I suppose. Um, uh, but yeah. But uh, yeah. So Madison... Well, if you could describe yourself in three words, what would words would you choose? Um, first, I mean the the first word is easy, and that's weird. Um, <laughs> the second word, the second word um, that came to mind is intense, but then I tried to make it slightly more positive, and then I came up with passionate, but read intense. <laughs> Um, and then I, I think yeah. probably creative. Um, and so, and I, I don't entirely feel comfortable with calling myself creative, but I think that once you see like the weirdness and the passion come together, then you, you got to accept that there's some degree of creativity, whether or not that's good creativity or not. <laughs> you know, did you, what, what did you say the first word was again? Weird. <laughs> Okay, weird. Okay, there you go. You know, it's yeah, funny. Yeah. We had to do, um, at one point we were doing like uh, like special tests about our kids just to, you know, assess them. And it said, does your child act weird? And I was like, yes, but can I also add a little box that says, this is what Stovells do. We, this is, like, we love weirdness. And I wanted to like have like a way I could tell the person, like weird is good in our definitions. So yeah, you were in, in our my, family yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> you could add like a little asterisk, like weird, like, but delightfully so or something like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so oh. if you could uh if you want an all-inclusive trip somewhere to anywhere in the world where would you go yeah this is a pretty tough question but because i kind of thought like does it should it be somewhere i haven't been should it be somewhere I love, like i know i love um i think it would probably be either in the caribbean or in spain um Spain is somewhere we've been before and really loved. And my husband and I sat around and we're like, we could totally retire here or just live, <laughs> like, just quit and live like a beautiful life and all of that. And I think the Caribbean would be similar. There's a culture there that, uh, that I appreciate and understand to some degree. And, um, and, but it seems to be a re more relaxed pace that I would enjoy. Mm. So, yeah. Or there are cultures there. I should say it's not a single monolith, but yeah. Cool. Yeah. So here's a, this is a classic, but if you could have a conversation with someone dead or alive, Madison, um, uh, who would that person be? Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. This is um, another one that I, so if I'm not thinking at all, then obviously like, the easy answer for me is like whoever wrote Hebrews, whoever in the world that person is like, you know, this, this would bring them, you know, to light and I could identify them, but also get to like really mm-hmm. have some fun. Um, but as, assuming that an anonymous person doesn't really work here. Um, actually, now that we've been talking about Jurassic <laughs> Park, Jeff Goldblum does come to mind. But um, <laughs> it would be, be fun yeah but Krista is probably who I'd want to talk to I think she's my favorite of the New Testament women I think she is very cool and uh, exciting and everything so that's what I want to talk to mm. so yeah okay very cool, cool. I, you could have that conversation with Paul I guess of, uh, since he read the book of Hebrews sorry oh I'm, I'm goodness, teasing right. you sorry, 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 <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. sorry I, that's, no, yeah no. Anyhow, I this is what not, happens right? when you've been friends with people for a long time. You just start teasing them as part of a podcast interview. <laughs> <laughs> is that what's going on here, right? Not, <laughs> not, not, not anonymous at all, actually. No, no, but, sorry, but yeah, yeah. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna move to our sort of second half of our questions. Um, and in our second half, one of the things we try to do is bridge. Um, bridge our discussion about theology with the church and with our spirituality. Um, and so this this first question kind of bridges, I think, from your research to maybe a little bit of more of how would that connect to Christians today. Um, you and I both love the general or Catholic epistles. Um, yeah. I love to spend time in John's letters, um, and they are so short, people don't tend to even know about them sometimes. <laughs> and I know you've spent time in Hebrews, obviously, um, and other parts of the general epistles. Um, and, you know, often these kind of can be muted compared to Gospels or Paul's writings, um, as we have talked about a little bit. Yeah. Um, one of your co-edited books, uh, Muted Voices of the New Testament, explores these often overlooked books. I would be really interested in you talking a little bit about how having a fuller view of these particular books that are often overlooked helps Christians today. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I that is something that I'm passionate about, and you know, it came out in some of my answer um, earlier when I was talking about reading Hebrews in its own right. Um, that's because I think that the reason that we have a canon and the reason that we have the books that we do is because there's diversity there, and it's God's intention to offer us um, different, again, different images and emphases and all of that. And I think that the Catholic epistles have some really beautiful things to teach us about God that are not emphases in Paul's letters um, or things that get kind of minimized because of other emphases in Paul's letters. And so for Hebrews, you know, we've already talked about what some of those might be, but um, for James, we have uh, attention to the poor and um, a desire not to show partiality alongside this uh, need to have a faith that um, is that bears fruit and that is exhibited by works and things. Um, for First Peter, it's this picture of Christians as those who are who identify with the marginalized, who are sojourners and exiles, who suffer um, and experience incredible difficulty. Um, for the Johannine letters, uh, you know, there's some distinctive uh, emphases in each of them. You know, First John. Um, we could talk about um, love and community and Christology, even um, in the second, in second and third John, an emphasis on something like hospitality. Um, so I know I'm having, I've hit all of them, 
But I hope that these are illustrative of some of the distinctive things that we would see there. It's not to say that those things aren't present in other texts in the New Testament, but they're distilled and, and brought out in some, and they, they really pack a punch in these tiny little books. Um, so I, I think they deserve our attention. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So um, you were talking about this earlier, Madison, and it was just, yeah, beautiful to hear. But I um, wonder if you could just even talk a little bit more about just ways you've grown in your faith through reading scripture, uh, the ways maybe the Bible is speaking to you now or powerful times in the past. Um, and then even what are other spiritual practices that are helpful to you besides reading scripture? Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I'm interested in those things. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a good Anglican. And so um, I do uh, use the prayer book to um, to guide my own personal reflections and time with God. Um, but in addition to that, I, I really love to be outside. And so I'm, not, I'm by no means saying that, you know, anything uh, pantheistic or panentheistic or whatever, but yeah, I think yeah. God has given us great beauty and creation. And, um, and I love to walk and to be outdoors and to uh, experience warmth and to see beauty and things like that. Though that's a place, that's my place that I'd love to pray is, is outside. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, in terms of how the New Testament has shaped me, I think that my formal study of scripture has helped me to further appreciate the complexity of God. Um, I think that as I learn more, you know, you, you might expect that that would demystify God to some extent. You know, I study and study God and now I understand him fully or something like that. But of course, that is not, <laughs> not the case. Um, that, <laughs> yeah. you know, every door I open, I feel like, uh, you know, leads to a path or some kind of hallway with many more doors. Um, that there's so much more for me to understand about who God is or, um, or even as I learn more about XYZ that, um, it becomes more complicated and multifaceted. And so um, those things don't, I can understand why that might feel discouraging. You know, you feel like, oh, if I just study and I'm doing all this work, like I should be getting somewhere. Um, But of course I think we are. Um, We are understanding God more as we understand his complexity and beauty. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I hope I I feel free to follow up if I haven't answered that comprehensively enough. No, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of a broad question. Do you feel like there's something that, like, maybe God has been teaching you about himself, like, lately uh, in, mm. in your study of scripture? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, the thing that comes to mind off the top of my head is that God continues to teach me to be patient. Um, I think that, I think there are ways that I am a patient person. It's it, it's always very weird to me when people describe me as such, but um I, there are so many things that feel unresolved in in the world right now, whether it's COVID or uh, injustice or, um, you know, me waiting to hear about X, Y, Z opportunity or thing or whatever, like just all of that. Um, it just continues to teach me patience. So I anyway, mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. what I'm working through right now is especially how to work alongside God as one of his agents for various yeah. things while trusting that he's actually the one that has to work everything out. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's, no, it's, it's great. Well, I was, I was thinking about as we were, as, as Ryan and I were thinking through questions to ask you and, you know, what do we want to talk about? One of the things both of us wanted to talk to you about is really just the way you encourage others. 
Um, and so one of the things that we've both seen in the times we've known you is this way that you are an encourager. So maybe if that wasn't one of your three words, that's okay, but it is a word <laughs> we would use of you. Thank you. And I know, you know, you and I both really, really value finding finding ways to to lift up marginalized voices in different ways. Um, can you talk a little bit about how some of the different ways that you found yourself engaging with that, whether that's in the academic world or the church world or, you know, the world world? Yeah. Um, yeah, there are a few different directions I want to take that. The first thing I would want to say is that um, in, a, in a lot of ways, I feel like um, whatever I'm doing as I'm engaging with people is what was modeled to me. Um, so I try to be as generous as I can with my time for students, for people who are exploring different questions, who are thinking about studying, who are thinking about getting into Hebrews, whatever, because I remember when I was in a different place and, or, you know, moving into a different area of study or whatever, and I needed help. Um, and so I had people who were incredibly generous with me. Um, and I wouldn't be here without them. And so I always try to take that seriously. Um, another thing that I would say is that, and this is another thing that God has been teaching me is that, um, caring for the marginalized is, is about learning from them as much as anything. And so to the extent that I think of myself as their benefactor, um, I'm not actually transforming anything, but it's trying to make sure that, um, as I enter into a relationship with someone that it's a mutual relationship where, where we're hearing each other and learning and being edified in these different ways. And so, um, I think that would be an, another thing. So I don't, I don't know if that necessarily relates to exhortation, by the way, this, that's such a kind thing to say. So I really appreciate y'all, um, <laughs> using, using that language to describe me, but for me, it's just about trying to come alongside people and to learn and to care for them. Mm. So, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I I do work within in reconcil- truth and reconciliation around indigenous communities, mm-hmm. and one of the things, the conversations that we have, is you know when when we ask the question like, well, what would what would you what would you like like how would you like us to resp- how would you like uh, me as a non indigenous person to respond to you? The first thing they say is listen, yeah, learn, and I think that that's <laughs> I think that's a really powerful thing to acknowledge that we're like, I love the language of being a benefactor from what someone else has to share. And I think that there's something about that humility to say, I'm, I need to be a learner in this situation. Um, it's been interesting for me in that because I realized, oh, as professors, we're the people who know things. Like that's almost like our job is yeah. to be the people who know things and to realize there's so much that I can learn from someone else if I sit and I listen. Um, and so I love that. I love that posture. Oh, thanks, Beth. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, honestly, I try to model that to my students too, to say that um, we're, we're all going to learn something here, that um, you have the spirit with you and have your experiences that you bring to the text and you're going to see things that I don't. And that's one of the beautiful things too. So um, totally. And, but it is one of those strange kind of nuances of our job or, or whatever unexpected kind of realities. So, but I, I appreciate that about you a lot. Thanks, Beth. That actually leads to a question that um, Ryan had on our list and we didn't send it to you, but it is a question. Um, it was around teaching and how you think about what makes a great teacher. Hmm. Would you be open to sharing a little about that? 
Yeah, I can try. Um, it, that's a little hard because um, I always, when I get asked about teaching, um, I, you know, I don't want to give the impression that I think that I'm a phenomenal teacher. Um, the the way that what the things that I consciously try to do that I hope I do well are things like listening to my students, facilitating conversations. Um, you know, I I've said I say a lot actually that um, towards the beginning of every one of my classes, I say. If you're looking for a class that's heavy in lecture, you have come to the wrong place. If you write on your, my teaching evaluation site, we want me to lecture more. I, that is feedback I'm never going to take. Um, <laughs> I, I think that our task is to learn together. Um, that, you know, I want to raise questions. I want students to be in dialogue with each other. Because in hearing those different perspectives, I think that something comes out. I also think it's the case, and I don't tell them this, but... My power in the classroom is something that I take very seriously. And so I understand that I have to set that aside. So as, as a person with authority, um, an authority that I, you know, that I have earned and that I should have and whatever, like there's some, somebody needs to be in charge in that room. But there are certain things that I shouldn't say because I, I want the conversation to remain open. As soon as I say, this is my position, for most students, that's going to shut things down. There are plenty of students who feel free to argue with me, and I love that. I invite them to. <laughs> but there, there's a certain um, personality among students where they may disagree with me, but they're not. They don't feel comfortable challenging an authority figure. But if a peer raises that perspective, then they are happy to kind of jump in and to ask questions and to interrogate that that more. And so that's the kind of environment that I'm trying to facilitate: is a place where we don't assume that any of our perspectives are perfect. Um, that we can learn from each other, um, and that the uh, object of our study, of course, God, um, and you know that our aim is to to know Him better and to love Him better. So that's cool. Yeah, I, I love hearing about. Yeah, that was a question Beth and I talked about. We, I think, we're. I mean, we're all teachers, yeah. so here and yeah, it's something I think about a lot. Um, so, kind of, this is tangentially related Madison but as someone who teaches at a seminary like how do you I mean I think that sometimes the academic study of scripture can be threatening for people or it's different than what they've uh, known or done and how do you kind of talk about the value of academic study what do you think that like people have to gain from learning Greek or Hebrew and um, reading a commentary that you're writing, or you know, how do you how do you how do you talk about the uh, the value of that and help students kind of enter into that? Yeah, um, let's see. I, I there's so many answers for this, and maybe this one is is well worn. Um, I'm not sure that that it will be anything new, but um, I, I can use some kind of a, an an analogy. Um, we. I talk a lot about grammar. I'm a grammar nerd. I love I love talking about grammar. I probably drive my students crazy. Um, <laughs> I don't count I don't count off on their papers, but I do teach I do write a lot on their papers, you know, and, and try to help them with grammar and stuff yeah. like that. But I, I want to be clear that I'm not like counting off 20 points because they have a thousand run-on sentences. Um anyways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. to, to be able to um, make good choices about grammar. And especially to know how to effectively break rules with grammar, you have to know them first. And so something like beginning a sentence with a conjunction, with but, um, that, that's a conscious choice that you can make, but you won't use it as effectively 
if you aren't making it as a conscious break in the rules. And so I think that that's the case with exegesis as well. But we shouldn't think that there's a one, two, three step kind of way of reading the text or developing our theologies or anything like that. But we need to understand what our options are as we're putting these things together. Um, And that gives us the opportunity to effectively make the right choices for communicating about who God is and understanding him well. So that's how I would think of it. You know, the idea of a toolkit or something like that is something else. But um, I'll use the grammatical example. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. You know, Madison, this has been just such a wonderful conversation with you. We're really thankful that you took the time to talk with us today. And I know that um, what you've shared with us today will be meaningful to many people. So I'm really thankful for that. So thank you again. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website at bridgingtheology.com. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd love it if you'd share the episode with others or leave a rating in your podcast player. This episode was produced by me, Kevin Hill.